verses 20 through 28. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20 through 28. To this point in our study, um, we've already seen the clear pastoral concern of this letter time and time again. But it is a, it's around this point in the letter that you can really begin to tell um, that this letter is very distinct from the others in the New Testament. Um, that is, much like a typical sermon, uh, it really has one central point. Now we know that Hebrews covers a lot of ground. It, it goes very deep in probing the, the depths of the types and the shadows of the Old Testament system, particularly the priesthood and the ceremonial law. But with in all of that, it has one central point, and that is that Jesus is better. We've seen that all along, but once again, the central point of this passage is to highlight for us this reality. The author has come at this very point uh, in previous chapters. He's come at it from Jesus' divinity. He's approached it from Jesus' incarnation. Uh, from his nature as the Word of God, and for a few chapters now as the true and great high priest. And here we continue with the theme of the priesthood of Christ. But now, in terms of that priesthood, the author explicitly brings in the idea, the theme of covenant. He is the priest of a better covenant. And his purpose is to show just that, that Jesus' priesthood is tied to a better covenant than the old covenant. And so we have this Jesus before us. The author compares him to the priest of the old covenant to show how the new covenant is better. It is because in it, Jesus, our great high priest, provides a complete salvation to his covenant people. He's a priest of a better covenant, and in it, it's better because he provides a complete salvation to his covenant people. And so with that, as our introduction, I invite you to look at verse 20, and we'll read through the end of the chapter this morning. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath, by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And thus the reading of God's word this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, 
The time has come now for the preaching of Your Word. Bring strength, O Lord, through my weakness to be faithful to it. May this Word make much of You and little of the one preaching it. Pray also edify and build up those gathered here today. And finally, may it all be to the praise of Your glory and Yours alone. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, as I studied this text throughout this past week, and I really thought about what the author's motivation was. Now, not that that's central, because ultimately the author of this passage is the Holy Spirit, speaking through an inspired man of God to record the Word of God. But nevertheless, the real personality of the author does come through. The real concern of the author does come through. The human author, that is. And I've thought about what his mindset would have been. And it's certainly one of loyalty, fidelity, faithfulness to Christ. After all, that's his whole point, is that Jesus is better. And his point is that because he cares. Because he knows this Jesus. In pondering that, I thought of a more worldly example in how oftentimes people develop passionate loyalty to brands and different things without a lot of objective reason. So for example, there's the age-old vehicle debate. Is a Ford or a Chevy or a Dodge better? Um, in the agriculture world, which I worked for a number of years, there's the John Deere versus Case, Inter- Case International debate. And the same thing is true in fashion, in recreation, in pretty much any realm you can think of, people have their opinions about what is better than um, its opposing uh, element. Now, it's interesting because more often times than not, the players in these debates don't base their arguments on objective facts. Instead, it's usually anecdotal. It's something like, well, that's what my daddy and his daddy used, and they were always dependable. So it has to be the best. And that's why you also never get anywhere in those debates. Because when you're coming with anecdotal evidence, you're not arguing on common ground. Now bring that up to contrast that with what we read here in the Scriptures. The author here is not showing his loyalty based on anecdotal evidence of something that just seems right or is probably right. Jesus is not better simply because he is new as a priest. He's not something new and shiny that captivates the attention of the author. Neither is he better because he's more likable. Certainly that may be true. No, the author is showing that he is better because of the substance of who he is and the covenant that he has ushered in. In other words, he is better because the facts teach that explicitly. There is objective reality that testifies to us that Jesus is the priest of a better covenant. And that's what the Scripture deals in, is these facts. And so you have here the audience, the original audience of Hebrews, that may have, from what we have seen, been tempted to return to the old covenant ways of worship, to go back to what is familiar to them, or to try and syncretize old and new covenant worship. So the author sets out to show them why there's no excuse for such things. In other words, he tells them, flee to Christ and rest in Him alone. But the the question why is an important one. It's because the text tells us He is able to save to the uttermost. That is, He completes salvation. 
It's not that he provides a pretty good salvation or a top-notch salvation. No, he provides an absolute salvation. And his priesthood, to bring it back to the topic at hand, testifies to this fact. Therefore, we ought all to passionately, joyfully, truthfully trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. So we're going to look then through the text, beginning in verse 20, at three aspects of Jesus being the priest of a better covenant. And first is simply the evidence of a better covenant. The first major claim in the passage is that Jesus is the guarantor, he's the security of a better covenant, the one who secures the covenant promises. And so naturally, the first question is, well, what makes it better? Go back to the example of the vehicle debate and things of that nature. That's a valid question. Well, what makes it better? Well, in our case, the Bible has much to say about that. But the author here summarizes it with two general statements, or rather by two general facts. One, the evidence of a better covenant is that it happened by oath from God. And secondly, it resulted in an eternal priesthood. So he's bringing in two elements, the oath, which we're going to talk about, and the fact that Jesus' priesthood is eternal. It lasts forever. There's no end to it. We've already explored that at length, but it's so important that the author returns to it again. So let's first look into what this oath is. Personally, I have doubt that the oath being talked about here is the same oath being talked about in chapter 6. You remember there, um, the oath is referenced from Genesis 22, where the Lord says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will bring about these blessings to you and your offspring. That was God's promise and oath to Abraham concerning the blessing. Now in chapter 6, it's clear that that is one of the oaths being referenced. The only question there is in the context, what is the other unchangeable thing? Because the author mentions two unchangeable things. One being the Genesis 22 oath, and the other being up for a certain amount of debate. But the data still seems to favor favor that the other thing was the original promise made to Abraham, but regardless, it's the oath of Psalm 110 that's put into view here. So in other words, what I'm telling you is we have a different oath. We have another oath in view being added on to the previous ones. And we see that here because we have another reference to Psalm 110 in verse 21. And the reference is Psalm 110 and verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the purpose here of this oath, the Lord has sworn, that's oath language. The point is to direct us to the end of the priesthood. You could also call it the eschatology of the priesthood. Right? There is a termination point. To say it differently, it's that all of that Old Testament system, the high priest, the inferior priest that served under the high priest in temple worship, all of that existed to point to an end, to point to something greater than itself. And so what the author is getting at then is that in Jesus we find explained the eschatology 
of the priesthood. It is all realized in Christ. And in that then, you see the tie of the oath to the eternal priesthood. It's that Jesus is a priest forever. That becomes important because that's a stark contrast to the priest of the Old Testament. Okay, None of them under the Mosaic law were a priest forever. They were only a priest for their time here on earth, and that was ended by death, which only further spoke to the fact that their priesthood was not truly effectual in terms of salvation. Because if it accomplished a true atoning for sin, there would be no more death. In Christ, we have what was pointed to, a true and complete salvation. One commentary puts it this way. It says, because, because God's oath stands behind the appointment of the eschatological priest, that is Jesus, Jesus can guarantee that the goals announced in the new covenant will be achieved. There's a lot going on there, but let's try to, to simplify what's being claimed. All right? God has made the oath, so he's guaranteeing it. He's saying, this is my word, it is true. Jesus is the one that it's being said about. Okay, So it's true concerning this Jesus. And it's tied to the new covenant, which is introduced in the Old Testament. It's explicitly spoken about in Jeremiah 31. But there's many passages that speak to the blessings of the new covenant. Another uh, prominent one would be Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37. You have promises of things such as a new spirit being put within God's people, a new heart that turns to the Lord, uh, the law of God being written on the people's hearts, a love for God that will be in the hearts of the people, that they will do God's commands and obey Him and love Him. You have all of these things that in practical everyday experience, seem pretty sensational. These are things that from an Old Covenant standpoint can seem so far off, so out of reach. They're nice ideas, but it's hard to believe that they could really come to pass. In other words, they were profound and difficult to imagine being fulfilled. And these things were not inherent to that Old Covenant. That is, they didn't come to pass under the Old Covenant by the Covenant itself. And thus we see then clearly how the New Covenant is better. All of these good promises culminating in the salvation of souls come to pass in the New Covenant. God guaranteed by an oath that Jesus was the priest and is the priest of this New Covenant. And by being appointed to an eternal priesthood, what that guarantees is that all of those promises come to pass in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the new covenant then is better, in short, because it is effective. And the effectiveness of the new covenant is centered upon Christ and Christ alone. Now, here's a, a helpful thought Concerning this Christ-centeredness, if you will, if you do a lot of reading in theology, uh, especially you know, articles, books, and things that come out in our contemporary age, um, there's been a lot said, even in Reformed circles, about being Christ-centered. There's books on Christ-centered preaching, Christ-centered worship, Christ-centered living, Christ-centered everything. 
Now, there is absolutely nothing wrong with being Christ-centered, but what this text helps us to understand is that it's not just a nice mantra to live by. And beyond that, being Christ-centered is not something that we can simply define however we want to define it. For example, sometimes Christ-centered is viewed primarily as doing the sort of deeds that Jesus did. Right? So if you help the poor, if you minister to the sick, and as far as just encouraging them, meeting their needs, then you're being Christ-centered. Less common is the view that being Christ-centered is primarily about having good doctrine. Now that gets much closer, but it still in and of itself falls short of what being Christ-centered truly is. Biblical Christ-centeredness is the conviction, the worldview, and the practice which understands Jesus Christ to be the very source of our lives, the very source of our salvation, and as it says here, the guarantor of eternal blessing for our soul. And so he's not simply something that we gravitate towards, but he is our all in all. Right? He's why we wake up in the morning in the truest sense. He is the one uh, who guides our life in every one of our decisions. He is the end of our purpose in this life. So to be Christ-centered is to operate with that sort of mindset. Verse 22 says, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. If He's the guarantor, there is no other through which we approach God, through which we enjoy these blessings. He is everything. But that brings us then to the next point, that if we've seen the evidence of a better covenant, we can go a little bit deeper into answering that original question of what makes it better. And this is the crux of the whole thing, as we said. It's because it provides a complete salvation. That's the significance of the oath. That's the significance of the priesthood. Because what we need especially when you look at the Old Testament system for what it was as a type, as a shadow, pointing us to Christ, what we need is a priest who has unhindered access to God. They didn't have that under the Old Testament system. Now, they did have a way in which a high priest was ceremonially cleansed and made able at least one day a year to go into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, to be before the presence of God. But even at that, he was not truly in the heavenly tent. He was in an earthly replica of the heavenly tent. And as we're going to see, though he ceremonially represented the people, he could not truly bring the people of God into that place. They were outside while he was inside. Thus reminding us of that separation between God and his people because of sin. Verses 23 through 25 contrast that by showing us that in Christ we have that great high priest who has unhindered access to God and who is therefore able to bring us, the people of God, into the very same thing. Second point being for us to examine the substance of a better covenant. Now to give us a little bit of a historical anchor um, the church historian, um, or rather the Jewish historian Josephus, um, he writes of how, by his calculation, there were a total of 83 high priests. Um, 
throughout the Old Testament era. That is from the time of Aaron, which we read about in the Pentateuch, to the time of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. He records that there were 83 high priests in successive line um, that administered worship in the temple. Now why that's significant is because what the text is doing here is contrasting the many to the one. The many being all this succession of high priests, the 83, to now the one we have in Jesus. We had this line that never uh, could bring about completion. There was never an eternal priest in it. It just kept going and going and going. Why? Because sin kept going and going and going. It was never truly paid for. Now we have Jesus, the eternal high priest. To give you an example... We all have smartphones in our pockets, or most of us. Uh, a lot of us have the iPhone. Well, when the iPhone first came out, I believe it was 2006 or 2007, Steve Jobs, the head of Apple, he introduced it at an event by telling the crowd um, that Apple had three new products for that year. And he gave this spill about how you know most developers are... are um, really lucky if they get to work on even one monumental project in their entire career. But now in this one year, Apple was unveiling three monumental products. And he, he went through how one is a widescreen iPod with touch controls, one's a revolutionary phone, and one's a, a breakthrough internet browser. And then the hook uh, was that um, all of these are one product, the iPhone. And the point was this, the principle, the selling point, was that where you have all of these different products, the many, the logical conclusion is that none of them individually are sufficient. They can do maybe one thing well, but they can't do all things well. And so the selling point that helped Apple sell millions and millions and millions of iPhones is that here's one device in your pocket that helps you do all things well. It can do whatever you need it to do. Again... What it's stating about the individual things is that none of them are sufficient. And the exact same principle is at work here. When you look at the Aaronic priests, you needed another one and another one and another one because none of them were sufficient to accomplish what they pointed to and what their ministry pointed to. By contrast, in Jesus, you have the only one appointed to this eternal priesthood and that by an oath from God. And thus he is complete. He's all we ever need. Now I do want to note though, as the text points to here, the importance of who are saved. Verse 24 points out again the eternal priesthood. Priesthood permanently because he continues forever. But verse 25 gives the conclusion from that. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Again, who are the ones who are saved? It's those who draw near to God through him. Let me just throw to you a couple of other texts that teach the exact same thing. John 14 and verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Okay, that's very exclusive. Acts 4.12 says a similar thing. Peter preaching, he said, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
Calvin comments on this reality you know, on our text here. And he says, this is the fruit of an eternal priesthood, even our salvation. If indeed we gather this fruit by faith as we ought to do. What Calvin is saying is what the scripture is saying. That Jesus is the only one by whom we have this salvation. But he doesn't purchase a salvation for every single person who's ever lived. He purchases a salvation for those who apprehend him by faith. That is for his people. And the only way to receive this salvation is by faith in Christ alone. Now we have here just a couple of proof texts that summarize what the entire Bible teaches. That there's no notion of any kind of universalism in the Scripture. Now, one kind of universalism says that, unequivocally, all people will be saved. Clearly, we see that can't be the case. There's another kind that says, well, most people will be saved. That is, anyone who's spiritual and who seeks God in their own ways. It's the view that there are many paths to God. But again, no, it's only through Christ, and not just from John 14 and Jesus making that statement, not just from Acts 4 and Peter saying the same thing, but from the entire testimony of the Scriptures from beginning to end that Christ is the great high priest. The very function of a high priest is to act as a mediator between God and His people. And the very function of that high priest is to bring God's people into God's presence through atoning sacrifice for sin. That picture goes out the window if we give any entertainment to the notion of multiple ways to God. No, it's not through Buddha or Muhammad or the Pope or Mary or the saints, but through Christ alone. Now to help us maybe grasp onto that a little further... I want to share with you another thought on Jesus as mediator and guarantor. In the Old Testament, uh, a shadow of this was how the high priest would go in before the Lord uh, once a year on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16 talks about that. We've already mentioned it. But in going in, part of his priestly garb that he had on was that he had the names of the sons of Israel on his shoulders and on the breastpiece of his vestments. That is, he bore the names of the sons of Israel on his shoulders and near to his heart. And so symbolically then, when he went in before God to the Holy of Holies, he carried the people of God with him. Exodus 28, verse 29 says, So Aaron shall bear the names of the son of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart, when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. It's clear what he's doing. He's representing the people of God before God. That particular text was part of the establishment of the office of high priest. And the full meaning of it was that this one man, consecrated, made holy, ceremonially that is, he was appointed to act as a mediator on behalf of the people to God and to intercede for them. Now to return back to the point we've been making all along, Aaron and every high priest after him, they only brought the people of God before God by representation. 
Because the people remained outside the veil. The people didn't walk into the holy place or the holy of holies with him. They were maintained separately. So while Aaron's priesthood did in fact speak a, a good word about God's provision, it was a type and a shadow that pointed to the fact that God would provide, that God would appoint the means necessary to give what they needed. It also, by its very nature, spoke to its inability to deal with the problem of sin that it pointed out. By contrast, through Christ, as the text says, we are actually able to draw near to God in the truest sense. To give you another New Testament example, that's why in Ephesians 2 and verse 6, it says that we have been raised up with Him and seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's not future language. It's present tense language. We have been. That is for the believer, for the one who has been regenerated, who has been made new, who has been brought into God's family. It is a present reality that they have been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Why is that? Because as far as I can tell, we're all still here. It's because we are in Christ. And because He is our perfect representative, our perfect mediator, everything that is true of Him is true for His people. Where He goes, He brings us with Him. And so through Christ then, we receive a full reconciliation to God. We are no longer far off, separated, distant. But in the truest sense, we are with God because God is with us. And so you begin to see then how the incarnation of Christ is tied up together with His priesthood. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time picking on alternative views, or, or particularly the Catholics, but it is important for us to understand something about Roman Catholicism on this point, because in our day, most Protestants aren't even aware of the problems with the Roman view of salvation, of Christ, of all these various things. For example, if you accuse a Roman Catholic of approaching God through Mary or one of the saints and not through Christ, they would deny it. They'd say something to the effect of, well, no, Mary and the saints help us before Christ, who in turn intercedes to God, or something to that effect. But that flies in the face of the Scriptures. Why? Because 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. And as we've seen, the whole scripture testifies to this fact. He is our alone mediator. And thus this priesthood of Christ is one of the most important doctrines in the scriptures. Because if we lose that, then we go the way of falsehood. We go the way of running completely contrary to what the scriptures teach. And so concerning then, what does it mean that Jesus continually lives to make intercession for the saints? Well, it means that in our daily lives, the effect of the cross isn't relegated to one moment in time in our conversion, but rather that every waking moment of our lives is covered by the mediatorial work of Christ. That's great assurance, and it goes back to God promising it. He is the guarantor of this better covenant. He's been appointed such by an oath. And he has been appointed to it eternally. And so we have that confidence that 
tomorrow or a month from now or 10 years from now. We're not going to wake up one day and all of a sudden everything that we've hoped in is gone. Everything that we've staked our lives upon has now changed. No, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which leads the author then to the final three verses where he points out the qualifications of Christ as our covenant head. And here again, simply serves to emphasize what's already been taught at length, and that is the perfection of Christ. Again, this is in comparison to the Levitical high priest that we've spoken much about. But those Levitical high priests, just to say it again, they were sinners like you and like me. That's why in the passage we read from Leviticus 9, they had to offer atonement for their own sins before they could go and minister on behalf of the people. But Christ is, as the text says, indeed perfect, holy. For that reason, he's able to provide a perfect and complete salvation. Very quickly, we see here in verse 26, uh, three adjectives given at the beginning. Holy, innocent, and unstained. What all of that serves to show is his purity, that perfection that we've spoken about. And again, it's stating it that so that it shows his qualification to be that perfect high priest. And it contrasts the Levitical high priest because even though they were under the law, even though they had the Ten Commandments and they were certainly called to be holy as God was holy, all that was actually required of them to serve in their capacity as high priest was a ritual purity. Now, what I mean by that, again, it's not that God lowered his standards in any way, but it's that, in effect, they were never actually sinless. They couldn't have been, because they were men like you and me. And so all that was required for them to serve in their office was a ritual purity through the ceremonial law. But what we have here under the new covenant is a high priest who is qualified by a true purity and a true perfection. That's why it was... Because that external ritual purity is not what we need. It doesn't, in fact, do anything for us. What we need is one who is actually pure, who was Christ, holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Now, regarding what it means then for Christ to be separated from sinners, we might think that that means separated in the sense of holy. But I think actually when you look at the word and the context here, it's talking about a physical separation. Again, the high priest under the old covenant, he ministered among the people. And even when he went in before God, he was still on earth. He was still in the same setting as the people of God. But our high priest, Jesus, he has passed through the heavens and he sits now at the right hand of God the Father. He's no longer physically present with us, And that actually speaks a good word. You remember Jesus said, it's better for you that I go. Why? Because again, where he goes, we go. And he carries us with him. And so the ascension of Christ and his session at the right hand of the Father speaks two major things to us. One, he's qualified to be there in the presence of God. And two, because he's there and he is our God, he has brought us with him. And where he's ministering now then, and this becomes important in later chapters, where he's ministering now, it is the true tent. 
because of His perfection as an eternal high priest. Again, all of that Old Testament system, the tabernacle and all the elements, they were copies and shadows, the book of Hebrews tells us later, of the heavenly things. He's no longer ministering in the copy. He's ministering in the true place. Now under the law, high priests were not commanded to offer daily sacrifice for themselves and for the people. That was unique to the Day of Atonement. And for that reason, some have questioned uh, if the author of Hebrews actually understood what he was writing here. But there really should be no problem for us because the author of Hebrews is most likely using the high priest as representative of the whole priestly system. And it is true that the regular priest on the daily would offer these sacrifices for the people. And regardless, the point is much more general than that. The point is the high priest had to offer continual sacrifice. Jesus, by contrast, is complete. His greatness is found in verse 27. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. That speaks volumes because it points us directly back to the cross. We often take for granted the doctrine Uh, that's called penal substitutionary atonement. But this is a reminder that we must be very clear on it. Because Jesus, while He is certainly an example to us, He did not die just to be an example. And also, while winning the victory over Satan, He did not die because Satan couldn't be defeated any other way. Satan doesn't have that kind of power. No, the essence of why He died on the cross was to be the sin-bearing judgment-receiving sacrifice for the people of God. That is, their substitute to bear the penalty of their sins in order to make atonement on their behalf. He did this once for all when He offered up Himself. And that speaks a real practical word then to all of us, both parents, fathers particularly, but to children as well, of what our religion looks like. It's not a Sunday school religion. It's not one in which we teach good stories that help people to be better persons. No, going back to our earlier point of Christ being at the center of everything, it teaches us that He alone is the one in whom we find our blessedness and reward. He alone is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. And so in leading our families and children in living your lives, What the text calls you to is to live out the covenant realities that are yours by promise. That is, to look to Christ. Because there is no other that you need to look to. There is no other who's going to give you salvation. There's no other who's going to give you blessing and reward and everything that you need. And therefore, when you're making your decisions as you grow up, and there's many decisions you're going to have to make, every one of them needs to be filtered through the lens of Christ. Because it doesn't matter if you make a lot of money. It doesn't matter if everyone knows your name or if only your family knows your name. The only thing that matters at the end of the day is that when we stand before the Lord, will we be found in Him? And the Bible says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. 
since he continually lives to make intercession for them. This is the greatness of Christ. And we see that emphasis that it was done once for all. That is, for his people, for all who draw near to him. And therefore, let let us not in our manner of life, whether in what we teach or whether in how we live, deny the sufficiency or the efficiency of Christ's sacrifice for the elect. It's a lie of Satan to suggest otherwise. To suggest that there was anything lacking in that sacrifice, that it may not have accomplished what it intended. To say that it was watered down, that it was applied to all people, and therefore all who die apart from Christ die of their own fault and of some insufficiency of God to save them. No, it accomplished all that our high priest intended for it to accomplish. And so there's no excuse then for wavering on it in the slightest because God desires that we be assured of this wonderful truth that the effects of the cross is a complete salvation through Jesus Christ, our high priest. The word teaches that and God has called us to believe such, to bow to it, and to take great hope in this gospel through Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord and Savior, we thank you for this wonderful truth. God, our hearts are so wonderfully encouraged by hearing of it. And we pray, O oh God, that in our weakness, in our daily struggles, Lord, with the abiding and remaining sin that is with us because we are still in the flesh, that God, you would strengthen us, you would equip us, be our rock and our refuge that we need to... Um, or to stand against it, that all glory might go to you, and that we might live in uh, joy and, Lord, in assurance from what we have heard today, that we might uh, witness it to others. Lord, to be a, a blessing, to build up others, our brothers and sisters, to proclaim the word to those who believe not, that they may come to faith and repentance and trust in Jesus Christ as he's offered in the gospel. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you now to stand, if you would, take out your hymnal. And let's turn to number 274. This is a wonderful hymn uh, that enables us to uh, sing out the wonderful truth that was just heard. Number 274.